I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Today on The Trade Guys, we discuss Representative Barr's bill to increase sanctions on China and the one-year anniversary of the October 7th Semiconductor Export Control Regulations, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, and we're back, and we even have our own countdown. Our listeners can't see it or hear it, they obviously can't see it, but and they can't hear it, but we get it, and it gets us fired up every time. It's sort of like Ray Lewis coming out of the tunnel, fired up. Scott, are you fired up? Well, yes, uh, probably not Ray Lewis uh, level of fired up, but uh, but we've got some important issues to talk about today. Yeah, so. Bill's definitely not that fired up, but I am awake. I, I feel a rant coming because we want to talk about Congressman Andy Barr's bipartisan legislation, the Chinese military and Surveillance Company Sanctions Act of 2023, which was passed unanimously out of the House Financial Services Committee. Guys, what is this thing? Well, a bit of context first. We're going through a period of of paranoia about China, which is not a revelation exactly, but it's manifesting itself in Congress with bipartisan competition. It's not just the Republicans uh, to produce ever more nasty proposals about China and you know, see who can outdo each other in trying to find a new way to stick it to the Chinese Communist Party. And the Barr Bill is the latest iteration of this, which was approved in committee. It appears the plan is, rather than try to take it to the floor, the plan is to try to tuck it into the Defense Authorization Conference Report and argue that it should be considered because it's kind of a counterpart to the provision, the, the Corn and Casey provision, an outbound investment review that's already in the Senate version. What the Barr bill does, though, is a different thing. And it's designed to deal with what sounds very benign until you you know, understand what they're talking about, about list harmonization. List harmonization deals with the fact that the government has lots of lists of bad guys. Those of you that are export control walks know that there's the entity list, the military end user list, the denied persons list, the Defense Department has the Chinese military companies list, the Chinese military industrial companies list, Treasury has, and this is why Barr is important, Treasury has the specially designated nationals and blocked person list, otherwise known as the SDN list. Each of these lists exists for a specific purpose, uh, and each of them has their own statutory criteria for inclusion. Some of the lists, like the Chinese military companies list, is basically advisory. Nothing happens if you're on it. It's kind of a warning sign that the Pentagon knows that you, if you're on the list, do business with the PLA. So that's advisory. The entity list, which is commerce, is tougher. If you're on that list, it means uh, you're doing something commerce doesn't approve of, and anybody that wants to export anything to that entity has to get a license. Uh, whether it's no matter what it is, so coffee cups, pens, chips, whatever, the 
the most far-reaching of these various lists, and this is where the bar bill comes in, is Treasury's SDN list. Because if Treasury puts you on the SDN list, what that means in practice is that your assets that are in the U.S. or subject to U.S. jurisdiction are frozen, and it is illegal for persons to engage in transactions with entities that are on the list, and it becomes very difficult for entities on the list to engage in dollar-denominated transactions anywhere because companies and banks are going to be reluctant to deal with you because they fear fearful that they're going to run afoul of, of Treasury sanctions. Now, keep in mind, too, when I say entities, the entity could be an individual, but it could also be a company. So it's a tough, it's kind of the nuclear, the nuclear weapon of lists. And what the bar bill does in the name of harmonization is to put pressure, it doesn't require, but to put pressure on Treasury to take all the entities that are on the other lists and put them on the SDN list. In other words, even if you're just on a list that has no currently, no consequences at all, and is simply advisory, what the bar bill would do is say, suddenly nobody in the United States can do any business with you. And if you think about it, that's really far reaching. A couple of examples. I mean, there's a lot of there are companies on on the uh, other lists, not the SDN list, like uh, the Chinese National Offshore Oil Corporation or CNOC, which engages in a lot of activities with American and other Western oil companies as well. The Chinese telecom companies, their their cell phone companies, which there are several, are on the military list because they sell cell phones to the military, among other things. You know, the reality at the same time is they also operate the cell phone network in China. So if you're an American in China trying to do business in China, you have to do it through their network. If they go on the, if they, these companies go on the SDN list, you wouldn't be able to do that. So there's a huge chunk of unthought out, unthought through consequences that would come into play if Treasury actually did what the bill is designed to encourage it to do. So gross overreaction, I think, without a sufficient thought as to what would actually happen if the provision were implemented. And with that, I yield to Scott for the rant. Well, I'll get started at least. Look, every time I see one of these sanctions bills out of the Congress and mostly see how little thought was placed be behind the, the actions, um, I want to paraphrase my grandfather and who always said, don't just stand there, do something. I want to say, don't just do something, stand there, okay? <laughs> and while you're standing there, think about what you're doing because what's sessions appear easy if you're a member of Congress because they don't hurt you by and large. And, you, and they're much easier to convince your constituents that you're doing something about some foreign adversary with sanctions than getting their uh, support and cooperation for sending the military or some more drastic action. So it's all the appearance of doing something that annoys me. But look, there are consequences of this. It hurts the economy. It hurts legitimate companies who are trying to do business in both this country and this targeted sanctions country. It also makes foreign policy much more difficult to conduct because every time a, a sanctions regime is implemented, it has all sorts of consequences that weren't being expected. And then over time, particularly with, with sort of broad-based actions like what Congressman Barr 
is attempting, they over time become ineffective. I mean, there's no way to manage the relationship with the adversary in a way that actually achieves some objective. But so look, step back, think about what you're trying to do and whether or not these actually do anything by the time all countermeasures get implemented and all inefficiencies get get uh, fully on display. That last comment, if I can interrupt for a second, is really important. They need to think about what they're doing and they need to have a more thorough discussion of exactly what the goal is. I think there are some people in the Congress who would say, well, let's just decouple 100%. Let's not do anything with China. If you look at the trading relationship now, and, and I think we've commented before, trade is declining investment is declining, but it's still enormous. There's still, uh, I think currently our places change, but I think right now they're our third largest traded partner. We have a big deficit with them. Disentangling ourselves from that would be an enormous shock to both economies. And so we ought to be thinking not just about the shock to their economy, we should be thinking about the shock to ours, but we should be thinking too about what is it, what is it we're trying to accomplish? Do you really want to force American businesses out of the country? Do you want to force them to stop selling stuff to China? Do you want to force them to stop doing business in China in areas that don't have any security implications? You know, if you're in a sector that has no security issues at all, if you're selling cosmetics, for example, you know, do we really want to say uh, we can't sell cosmetics to China because we don't like them? I mean, that's what these, that's what things like the bar bill are going to force us to do. They're going to make it impossible for Americans, both in China and companies uh, doing business with Chinese simply to do normal business in normal, not security-related uh, areas. Meanwhile, if, you, if you're China, the response to sanctions like this writes itself because we talk a lot on this program about strategic minerals. And China has massive shares of the production of many, many strategic minerals. So the, some of the so-called rare earths, up to 98% of world supply comes from China. And we're ready to do without those? Well, get ready to not make much of anything in the United States, at least not anything with sophisticated electronics or components. Heaven help you try to make an electric car or uh, many of the things that are part of the priorities of both the Congress and the administration. So these these things need to be thought through. They need to have, as Senator Richard Luger always promoted, they need to have a sunset clause. They need to go away at some point. But being able to th- to think through what what it is you're trying to achieve and how this achieves that and does as little damage doing it as is possible would be a worthwhile exercise. So, well, it, guys, take a break. Well, let me let me ask you guys this: Are we seeing? Do you believe we're seeing paranoia um, from China as well? Yes, I think the the Chinese regime has been. It appears that they've been effective in playing the nationalist card and are convincing, particularly their younger generations, that all the problems are America's fault and not theirs, and that everything that China does is good and right. And it's what Xi Jinping said, China's rising and America is declining and that we need to recognize our revised place. I, I think I've started thinking about this a lot because when I was in graduate school, I wrote equivalent of my master's thesis on on, the, on this kind of issue, basically arguing that Maoism, because then he show you my age, he was alive then, that Maoism was basically Confucianism with Marxist-Leninist rhetoric. And one of the elements of Confucianism that is interesting is that the key to harmony is knowing your place. And your place might change from time to time, but if you know your place in Confucius' view, then you know how to behave. You know, you know how to behave 
to the people that are above you. You know how to behave to the people below you. So the key thing is understanding where you are in the in the panoply of you know places that you could be. And there, you see a lot of this in in uh, in Chinese national policy now. They see themselves on the way up, uh, and that suggests that they can act in a different way than 20 or 30 years ago when they saw themselves in a subordinate uh, position. And one of the things you can tell about China over history is not just the, the CCP, the Communist Party, but in the past is when they think they're higher up the food chain, uh, they overreach and they bully. And you're seeing that exactly right now. And you know, if you're Lithuanian or Australian or Korean or Norwegian, 12 years ago, I guess it was, you've seen this firsthand in the, the use of trade as, as a weapon. And so at the same time the Chinese are doing that, they're convincing their younger generations that this is the way to do it. And this is China rightfully asserting itself. And the thing that's depressing about that is it suggests we may be in for a long period of difficult relations. You know, the, the people that are running the government now are people like Xi Jinping, for example, who lived through the Cultural Revolution. And that's a generation, sort of my generation, and, and the people still now in their 60s and some in their 50s now, for whom stability and economic growth are really important. And a really interesting question for China is, what about the people who were born 1980 or later? So, okay, they're in their 40s now. They grew up after the Cultural Revolution. They grew up in a period where most of the time China was growing at between 6 and 10% per year. So they grew up in a time of relative prosperity, and we are now facing two interesting questions. One, their economy is slowing down, maybe not forever, but for the next couple of years maybe. How are they going to react to a period of, of slow growth, maybe even recession? And second, what are, are their priorities? Are their priorities are on growth and appliances and consumer comforts, or are they more interested in a, a more, you know, China taking a much higher global profile, whatever the answer is, they're going to be around for a long time because the, you know, the people that are in their 60s are, and 70s are in charge now. The people that I'm talking about are in their 20s. It's going to be a long time before they're in charge. And if they are all have bought into the nationalist rhetoric of Xi Jinping, I worry about the relationship over not just his lifetime, but over a longer period than that. Yeah, I tend to think about uh, CSIS's famous Henry Kissinger, who once said that even paranoics have real enemies. I think he was speaking about President Nixon at that time. but I think so, uh, yeah. In any case, it's worth considering that because we both have interests that conflict and we have interests that converge. And cool heads are likely to create better outcomes here. So someone needs to step back and think and think strategically about where we're going, about why we need to make China a, re a real enemy or whether they're just we're making up the fact that they're our enemy. And we, we, gotta, we gotta get it precise enough that it's clear what the next step is and not just throw everything at the, at the problem. Yeah, and what we're seeing in the Congress right now though is exactly what you just decried, which yep. is, you know, the, it's the Trumpian strategy, hit him in the face, and then hit him in the face again, and then keep hitting him in the face until they fold. And I think what we learned from Trump is they don't fold. You know, it's not that simple. Well, when it comes uh, to sanctions, that, that didn't even work with Cuba. All right? Well, good point. Well, why is it going to work with China? I mean, guys, 
get a grip. When I was running the National Foreign Trade Council, we ran a, a group called USA Engage, which was the group that opposed unilateral sanctions pretty much across the board, which put me in sometimes difficult positions because I was the guy that had to go up and explain why Cuba sanctions were bad, why Syria sanctions were bad, why Iran sanctions were bad as long as they were unilateral. And it was frustrating because we'd go up to the hill and we would explain in great detail why these things wouldn't work. And the, the congressional response would be, well, we know they won't work, but we have to do something. And my response was, well, you don't have to do something stupid. You know, you can think about it and do something smart. But they didn't want to hear that. They just wanted to do something so they could say, well, we've, we hit the bad guys. And that the bar bill is sort of in that category. You know, let's another blow at them without a lot of regard to, does it make sense to do this? And, and from a strictly cost-benefit point of view, does it cost us more than it benefits us? And I think for that bill, the answers would turn out, will turn out to be yes. Guys, another issue I want to bring up is October 7th is the anniversary, the Export Controls Act, also known as the CHIPS Act. Can you briefly remind us what the October 7th rules were about? And I want to ask also, have they accomplished anything? Yeah. Well, there's controversy about that. The rules, you know, in the immediate thrust of the rules was to impose tighter controls on certain chips, mostly used for AI and high-performance computing and the tools that are used to make those chips. And if you take a step back, bigger picture, it really signified the end of policy that really began when I, when I had this job was simply orienting your control policy to try to keep the adversary, in this case China, one or two generations behind us technologically. And what that meant was, you know, as long as we kept running faster, we stayed ahead. But it also meant that when you had an adjustable line like that, as our technology advanced, we could relaxed control levels as, as long as they were still only getting old stuff. And that allowed us to sell them a lot of old stuff and make a lot of money, which went into R&D to develop new stuff to keep us ahead. What the October 7th rule did was they drew a line, several lines. One was a 14 nanometer line for memory chips. It was a different performance parameter, but it was a line. And the indication is that the line, it's going to stay the line. And of course, what that means is as technology advances globally, the universe of stuff, you know, over the line, subject to control, is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So today's cutting edge and most advanced chip, three years from now, is going to be old news and legacy, but it's still going to be controlled. And so the questions that came up a year ago were, how is this going to affect U.S. company revenue? because that's critical to their future. How is this going to affect Chinese plans and what they do? And third, is this going to be an incentive to design out American technology and develop competing products that are not subject to our controls because they don't use any of our technology or any of our parts? And a year later, I think we have partial answers to those questions. Effect on company revenues, um, Yes, you know, for a couple companies, a significant hit. Not for everybody, because the universe of chips that are actually coming under new controls was relatively small. But as I said, as time goes on, that universe gets bigger, the revenue hit gets bigger. China, effect on China plans, it didn't alter their goals because they, for years, have wanted to basically go off on their own and develop their own technology. I think what we've done is accelerated their path, their path because we've basically said it's going to be a lot harder for you to do this. 
And so they're moving a lot faster to get where they want to go. I'm not sure they're going to be able to get there, but they're moving faster. The most interesting thing is the design out thing, because we saw this in uh, commsats, communication satellites in the 90s and the aughts, when Congress changed the rules to make it harder to export American satellites. And the result was that other countries, third countries, the French, among others, started making satellites, which they advertised as free of any American technology. And in a few years, the American global share of the market went from 75% to 25%. Congress ultimately changed the rules and we got some of that back, but it shows you what can happen when you get into this game. I thought a year ago that this was likely to happen, but it was going to take a while because chips is, there are high entry barriers in the semiconductor sector. It's very, very expensive. It's a very sophisticated technology. If you don't know what you're doing, you can't just build a fab plant in Guatemala, you know, start producing in six months. But we've discovered with the Huawei chip, which I think we've talked about, the Chinese are moving much more quickly than at least I thought uh, to compensate for the controls that went into effect. And they've now produced a chip at the seven nanometer level, which means it's well under control because we're controlling at 14. And Huawei is busy outfitting their phones with this chip. And they did it with older tools tools that had been, I believe, legally exported in the past. So basically, they found a workaround to what we did. So your question, are they effective? The answer is somewhat, but never, not completely. And the reality in this business is they're never completely. You know, if, you're, if your goal is, you know, zero leakage, you're going to fail. And in this case, though, the leakage, I think, is coming quicker and to a greater extent than I expected. Look, it's always, as Bill pointed out, it's always difficult to base controls on a hard limit when technology is changing. And in the area of integrated circuits and computing technology, technology changes amazingly fast. And that pace of change makes the hard line or the limit obsolete faster. And I think we're seeing that now. This will be something to keep an eye on because the, the direction is not linear and, and it's not a single speed matter. It's not. It's a function of lots of innovation in a sector, not quite worldwide, but in many, in many places and within many firms. I always watch lithography because lithography is essential component. And at the high end of technology, there were only well, some would say only one firm, but maybe just a handful of firms who have the ability to make the most uh, miniaturized etchings, which is essentially what it is. Uh, ASML, the, the Dutch company, is has the best technology and has been the leader for a number of years. The Japan-based companies, Nikon and uh, Canon, also have good but not as good technology in lithography. But that's one you can, you can actually watch as a litmus test to see whether... The innovative, one of the restrictions on lithography equipment are working or being innovated around. At the moment, they seem to be working. Holland and ASML, the company, are cooperating with U.S. efforts. So that's the good news. But this won't last forever. And there's a question of the extent of the cooperation. The, the full Dutch controls went into effect only last month and stuff that was contracted for and is shipped before January 1st can still be shipped. So they're on board, but they've come aboard very slowly. And there's a lot of stuff that I think is going to get to China that we would prefer not have gotten to China because they've kind of slow rolled it. 
that said, you know, this is a, a big issue for the Dutch economy. It's a big, you know, this is a global leader in technology. And if they do what we want, they're going to take a revenue hit. That's it. You know, it's a big ask for the Americans. And I congratulate the Dutch for cooperating, but can also see why they have a domestic political problem because their company is going to take a hit. Yeah. None of these decisions are easy. And that's coming back because, you know, the next shoe to drop, it comes from our side because the the rule that was issued that you asked about, Andrew, was was called an interim final rule, which means it went into effect when it was issued, but the department received comments on it and reserved the right to amend it later on. It's now a year later and everybody's expecting something to arrive fairly shortly. The information that I'm getting is it's not going to be as soon as people think because they haven't made up their minds on what they want to do on all the stuff. But there is one element of all this that is that is time sensitive. And that is when they when they did the rule, they provided a waiver to the Korean firms, which are Samsung and SK Hynix, who operate semiconductor fab plants in China. And they gave them a waiver to continue doing that in China as long as they didn't upgrade you know, and, and move to a higher level of technology. That was a one-year waiver, so it expires next week, when on uh, October 11th, I believe. The It's been publicly reported that the administration intends to renew the waiver and intends to renew it indefinitely. And it's pretty clear they don't want to have a gap, so we should expect something between uh, something before October 11th dealing with the Korea waiver, whether it will be, com- be accompanied by other changes in the rule, I don't know. There's a couple small loopholes to plug. There's a couple uh, areas that are vague and need clarification. I haven't found people in the industry that are too worried about it, but everybody wants to see it. And then, of course, everybody's also worried about the shoe after that, which is what are they going to do on quantum computing? What are they going to do on AI? not the chips, but on data and the other elements of AI. What might they do on biotech? My information is that's some months away. But uh, there's a lot more going on in the government trying to decide how to deal with these very difficult, complicated issues. Well, guys, we guess we're going to have to wait and see. Well, because there's more to talk about. Yes, and uh, maybe for next week, we need a lighter topic. Some uh, like Something fun- not paranoid and... and- Happier. I'm thinking, you know, a fun salted snack of some sort. There's got to be a trade issue there somewhere. Well, we can do we can do tomatoes or that sounds avocados good. or something that's we love doing avocados. Yeah, those those are great stories in my book. Usually, yeah, that's is, a Cinco de Mayo story, though, as I recall. It, a little <laughs> early for that. Right. All right, guys. Well, until next time, really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.